0: Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues.
1: My name is Desmond Lochman, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our European event, which I'm sure is going to prove to be rather lively. It would be an understatement for me to say that over the past six months, many developments have been occurring in Europe that could have a very important bearing on both the European and the global economies. For a start, Europe has gone from growing at a satisfactory pace in two thousand and eighteen to stalling this year with a number of European economies now on the cusp of recession. In that respect, President Trump's threat to impose a 25% import tariff on European automobiles later this year has hardly been helpful. Equally troubling has been the failure of the UK Parliament to secure passage of a Brexit deal and of Nigel Farage's Brexit party's very strong showing in the recent European elections. That raises the distinct possibility that the United Kingdom will soon get a hard Brexiter to replace Theresa May as Prime Minister, and that the UK could either crash out of Europe without a deal on October 31st, or else go to an early election. It also has to be of concern that in Italy... Mr. Salvini's political star is rising and that he is proposing a large, unfunded tax cut that could put Italy on a collision course with the European Commission. Meanwhile, Europe has recently held parliamentary elections that seem to have shaken up European politics, including those in Germany, which has Europe's largest economy. That must be expected to influence the character of the next European Commission's leadership and it could have implications for the longevity of the German government. And later this year, we have Mario Draghi's scheduled departure from heading the European Central Bank at what could prove to be an awkward time for the European economy. In short, it seemed to good friend Alex Pollock and me, very timely for us to have a European seminar that might take stock of how Europe might handle its many economic challenges. I'm delighted that we have assembled a panel of European experts and uh, I'd emphasize the word European, that apart from me, they're uh, European, uh, with real experience to help deepen our understanding. Vita Gaspar, who is now head of the IMF's Fiscal Affairs Department, was formerly Portugal's finance minister. Athanasios Orfenides, who teaches at MIT, was formerly the governor of the Central Bank of Cyprus and a member of the governing council of the ECB. And Lorenzo Forni, who is head of a leading Italian think tank, has had considerable experience at the IMF and the Bank of Italy. Once again, I'd emphasize that I'm neither European nor an expert, but that won't stop me from giving my opinion. With those brief words of introduction, I'll now hand it over to Alex Pollock, who will moderate this event. Thank
0: you, Desmond. Welcome to our distinguished panel. And ladies and gentlemen, we're glad you're here uh, for our conference on Europe's populist and Brexit economic challenge. Much has been written, needless to say, about what the recent European Union parliamentary elections might mean. The big question, opined one commentator, is whether the EU is gradually disintegrating or gradually progressing toward A closer union? A good question for today's discussion. Another commentator suggested that the euro has proved to be a golden cage and that Italy exemplifies the central problem of its monetary union. Another good issue. Desmond Lachman has asked how likely is policy reform in the wake of the fragmentation of Europe's politics? seems to me that such questions are about what the nature of the European Union is or will be or should be. Uh, in this context, we're always tempted to speculate about the parallels or differences with the evolution of the United States. How to structure Brexit, needless to say, is proving most difficult, but exit from the European Union on any terms certainly contrasts vividly with Abraham Lincoln's theory that once a state was in the Union, there was no exit on any terms, period. In pre-Civil War America, we had our own version of the bank-government doom loop, as we now call it. In those days, American states chartered their own banks with the requirement that the banks had to buy that state's bonds to finance the state government. So the state governments and the banks could go down together, as they sometimes did, just as they can in Europe today. An essential American policy decision in the mid-19th century was not to bail out failing state governments. So the states of Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia all defaulted on their debt in the 1800s. Will the state of Illinois do so in this century? We know the Federal Reserve will buy the mortgage bonds of Fannie Mae, but it will not buy the state bonds of Illinois. On the other hand, Illinois doesn't have to ask permission of Washington, D.C., to run whatever budget deficit it wants. These two factors are interestingly reversed in the situation of Italy and the European Union. Italy is constantly tutored by Brussels about its budget, but on the other hand, it can confidently expect that the European Central Bank will support its bonds. A real interesting contrast between the evolution of these uh, two unions, uh, it seems to me. What kind of union will the European Union evolve to be from where it is now? And what are the best policy recommendations for Europe now with its current political, economic, and financial stresses, as Desmond has mentioned? And we have a truly expert panel to address these issues. Our first speaker will be Dr. Gaspar, followed by Professor Orphanides, and then Professor Forney. Our fourth speaker, whom Desmond did not formally introduce, is Desmond himself. So I have the honor to say a few words about him. Desmond Lockman is a resident fellow at AEI, focusing on the global macroeconomy. With trademark bubbling optimism for the results of human endeavors in politicized finance, Desmond frequently reminds us of our massive debt, the global asset price bubble, problems in Europe, and our voyaging in unknown financial seas. And he is the organizer of this conference. Thank you, Desmond, for getting us all together to address these most interesting and timely issues. Vitor, welcome to AEI, and you have the floor.
2: I uh, will be able to speak about Europe with uh, two advantages of perspective, I believe. I've uh, devoted 25 years of my professional career to Europe. I was uh, working very closely on issues of European integration from 1989 to uh, 2014, and that's when I joined the uh, International Monetary Fund. From that point onward, my view has been uh, global, and honestly, I have not been following uh, developments in uh, uh, Europe as closely as before. The other advantage in terms of viewpoint is that I now see Europe from the other side of the Atlantic. And distance does give perspective. I thought that this was very opportune because European politics are, in my view, extremely interesting. And I would like, in a sense, to debate European politics with all of you. And I would like to learn more about European politics. When one thinks about The economic and financial aspects of the Euro area, I think it's fair to say that from a technical viewpoint, there is an ample consensus on diagnosis and there is an ample consensus on what kind of options make sense. The choices will be political. Just to give you a sample, the IMF has been uh, very explicit about what it uh, recommends. For example, my very good colleague Paul Thompson has spoken about the architecture of economic and monetary union about a year ago in Brussels and used a very powerful image. He basically says that Europe should equip itself with private and public mechanisms for risk sharing. He then goes on to emphasize that in order to avoid moral hazard, risk sharing has to go hand in hand with risk reduction. And then he makes a point of political realism. He says many members, many participating countries in the Euro area will not accept risk sharing without risk reduction. The elements that the IMF has been putting forward as crucial for the architecture are banking union and progress has been made. For example, the single supervisory mechanism. But a lot remains to be done. For example, a European deposit insurance scheme. It's very important for a private risk sharing that a true capital markets union is in place. There are uh, challenges that have to do with the functioning of the single market in the uh, financial sphere. There are issues that have to do with market infrastructure. There are even issues about tax harmonization. Last but not least, from a macroeconomic management viewpoint, it would be good if Europe could dispose of a central fiscal capacity to be able to cope with euro area wide uh, shocks or support countries in the case of idiosyncratic shocks. But all of this is well-known. Options are on the table. Choices are political. Now, I thought that the survey done by the European Council of Foreign Relations about attitudes of Europeans towards their own government at the national level, and the European government, was very telling. Of all the people polled, only 24% believed that the political system worked well, both at the national and at European level. Only the Danes believe so with an absolute majority, but you have relative majorities, for example, in Germany as well. 38% of Europeans do not believe that the political system works Well, either at the national or at the European level, and you see that the numbers are very high in countries like, say, Greece or Italy. So there there is clearly a challenge. Interestingly enough, and perhaps even paradoxically, most Europeans are of the view that their country benefits from membership in the European Union. Not only is the balance of the opinion favorable to EU membership, the degree of positive balance has gone up in almost all countries. And in terms of a balance of opinion, the only country that is below the 50% line happens to be Italy. The participation of voters both in national parliamentary elections and European parliamentary elections is trending down. It's actually trending down or has been trading down more for European elections than for national parliamentary elections. But the last European parliamentary election is an exception. There was a, quite a substantial increase in voter participation And that is something which is remarkable. When David and I were discussing this presentation, one of the things that we wanted to make sure is that we had our views on record before the elections so that we would not be, in a sense, re-engineer an explanation. And so what you have is two things. One, the share of the two largest political families in Europe in the seats in the European Parliament. The two largest political families in Europe are the European People's Party, EPP, and the Socialists. Typically, they dominated, they used to dominate the European Parliament. They had a very large majority together. And in these latest elections, they have come below 50% of members of Parliament. At the same time, during this period, the representation of populist parties has increased. We just took a definition of populism from uh, the literature. It's from two professors from Harvard, Norris and Hingelhard, and we applied it mechanically. We just wanted to have something that would give us a view. And what you see is that the populists are almost as numerous in terms of European parliamentarians as the largest political families in Europe. And you see something else. The prediction from Politico and the outturn are virtually identical from a qualitative viewpoint. What you have in the European Parliament is that you have much more fragmentation than before. So at this point in time, most political analysts believe that one needs a coalition with for groups of parties to have a decisive majority that is actually able to get things done, that is much harder to find than a coalition of two. Uh, you have this increase in the populists, and you do have an increase in some new political formations like En Marche in France, and the Greens have performed very well across Europe. I speak of political tsunamis because in many countries, political systems have been changing in a fundamental way. What you see in France, if you compare the two European Parliament elections, is that the Socialist Party has lost about half of its members of Parliament. La République En Marche has started as a new party, and it's at the top of the representation, the Rassemblement National, national rally, has uh, won both the European elections in 2014 and the European elections in 2019 in France. But if we go to the detail, La République en Marche started extremely strong but the showing in the European elections is substantially lower than their showing in the national parliamentary elections. I could give you the example of the rise and fall of the socialists in Italy. I could speak about the change in the um, Greek political system. Many examples could be given across Europe. Germany has, in Europe, been at the center of Europe uh, geographically and politically since the start of the European Union. The strength in terms of population, in terms of economy, in terms of finance of Germany, puts it squarely at the heart of Europe. The polar opposite of Germany at this point in time is, to my mind, Italy. And what do we see in terms of populism in Germany and Italy? When you compare 2014 and 2019, The map of Germany looks very much the same and populism is concentrated in the eastern landers, in the eastern part of uh, Germany, while Italy, well, Italy has become populist. We have one exception up there in the north. Is this a coincidence? Well, not really. What we see is that there is quite a sharp contrast between the economic performance measured in terms of GDP per capita for Germany and for Italy. We have there the United States and Japan for comparison. I'm depicting GDP per capita in purchasing power parity in percentage of the average of advanced economies. So the, the lines are very flat. But there is very interesting research by Luigi Guizzo and some co-authors that is going to come out as a brooking paper very soon. And they show that the support for populism in uh, Western Europe is strongly correlated with exposure to the shock of globalization. And Italy is at the top of the distribution and constraints on macroeconomic policies associated with uh, Euro area uh, participation. And again, Italy scores very highly. How does this leave us? Well, Jean Monnet has uh, written in his memoirs and is reproducing a very well-known speech that he gave that Europe will be built in crisis, and the way the institutional structure of Europe will look like will be the sum of the responses to this crisis. Now, if you see it from that viewpoint, with so many uh, crises in the recent past, uh, they're not only economic and financial. Migration Terrorism do qualify from a political viewpoint. they're actually uh, more salient with all this crisis, there is ample material for building
0: athanasius
3: thank you it's a pleasure to be here and uh, uh, vidor it's a it's a tough act to follow, especially the comment that we've had uh, so many crises that uh, if we were to follow uh, uh, monet's uh, sayings. There is so much building material to move forward. And this is such a positive view of where we are headed that uh, I don't know, I'm a little bit ambivalent about taking the other side, but I will. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I I worry about the the political situation in in, in Europe that that Vitor already mentioned. Uh, And in in my view, Europe is trapped between uh, two competing narratives right now. On one hand, we have a uh, technocratic elite that maintains uh, the narrative that the European project has been a huge success. The abysmal uh, economic performance of the past decade, Vidor showed just Italy, but uh, actually with the exception of Germany, the Euro area has, has performed abysmally in the, uh, in the past decade, is considered to be a temporary uh, aberration. Indeed, in this narrative, the only problem is uh, populist uh, indiscipline. And in some member states uh, of Europe, especially in the Euro area, uh, the population is misguided. It votes for governments that are no good. And then the job of the elites in Brussels and Frankfurt is to see how they can engineer kicking them out, replace them with better governments that are going to move the project ahead. And given the supposed benevolence of the technocrats in Brussels and Frankfurt, we should all support this, and eventually, through the crisis, we are going to see uh, better days. There is another narrative, on the, on the other hand, that a growing fraction of the population in a growing number of countries, as was shown by the polls and the so-called uh, increase in populism that Vidor showed, that recognize that the prescriptions advocated by the technocratic elites in Brussels and Frankfurt don't seem to be serving the needs of the people in these member states. In this alternative narrative, the elites in Brussels and Frankfurt don't appear to be acting in the best interest of Europe as a whole, they appear to be acting as if they were more or less captured by you know, a couple of member states. So their, their prescriptions are just perfect for one or two member states, but not for the rest. And with a growing appreciation that this is not a club of equals, this is a club in which some member states are at a huge disadvantage, according to these narratives, uh, they need to kick out Parties that used to be the mainstream parties of the past, they need to elect governments that will truly represent the interests uh, of the citizens uh, of their countries, even though those governments may be called populists by, uh, by foreigners and may be disliked by the elites in, in Brussels and Frankfurt. And, and it's a gamble. Uh, should you vote for a government that, with some probability, will at least uh, protect the interests uh, of uh, of the population in the country, even though they may create problems and frictions with uh, with Brussels and uh, and Frankfurt, and this is the other narrative that that we see uh, in part in the polling data. Now, there is an advantage in Europeans looking at Europe from this side of the Atlantic, as as, Vero, as Vidor pointed out. Uh, I think it gives us a little bit more clarity, and we can dis- disassociate with ourselves with. Uh, with any of the multiple narratives that are there. I've highlighted two. Now, in my view, there is an element of truth in both of these narratives. I'm not going to discuss uh, which may be better or worse, but there is a dichotomy in that the people representing this, these two views don't seem to be indirectly talking with each other. And in my view, this is creating uh, tensions and is leading to... The risk of the disintegration of the European project, and I'm not optimistic, and I'm not nearly as optimistic as as vidor is uh, is this on this point. So Alex asked one of the key questions that, in my view, is is behind the current troubles. Um, has the euro proven to be a golden cage? I think this is a critical question because in In my view, many of the multiple crises that we have seen over the past decade, including the migration crisis and Brexit, originate in the mismanagement of the euro crisis. Once people in different member states in the euro area saw that the rules were not enforced the same way for all member states, policy in Brussels and Frankfurt is not designed to benefit all states in an equal manner with respect to the euro area, they started asking questions about other policies. And once we realized that Europe isn't really working the way it was advertised as equal states with institutions working in the interest of all, people are suspicious of the response to any other problem, the migration problem, and of course the British being Rational people, as a people, they're rational. They say, do we really want to be in this club that is so dysfunctional in so many other ways that is giving us the Brexit? So in my view, if we want to have any hope of moving forward, we need to go back and ask the question, are the elites in Brussels and Frankfurt who are, in effect, driving... The agenda, those are the, the groups of people who are supposed to drive Europe forward through crisis in the, in the framework that we mentioned before. Are they even acknowledging the problem? Or are we still in this situation of an alcoholic who, years after being an alcoholic, still refuses to acknowledge the problem? And my, my concern with Europe today is that when it comes to the main institutions in Europe, in Brussels and in Frankfurt, we are still, unfortunately, in the denial phase of the, uh, of the problem. And I worry quite a bit about this. Because one of the questions we were asked to ponder about is, well, suppose we, uh, we have another downturn in Europe. Some, some economic shock, Desmond mentioned trade, for example, We could easily see small shocks in the global economy that requires, for once, the correct response to sustain the euro-area economy. Drawing from the lessons of the past 10 years, can we hope that we will have the reasonable response that would be necessary to uh, avoid having yet another decade of recession? And I worry quite a bit about whether we would have the correct response in Europe because the elites in Europe have not yet acknowledged what has gone wrong over the past 10 years. And if one is refusing to acknowledge the flaws in the management of the euro crisis, simple things, for example, that in the aftermath of the global financial crisis in Europe, fiscal policy ended up being too tight. I think in retrospect, from this side of the Atlantic, this is obvious. In Europe, this is still incredibly difficult to acknowledge. Or again, looking at at the euro area from this side of the Atlantic, monetary policy has been too tight. This would seem obvious from this side of the Atlantic. The ECB, before the crisis started, with inflation and inflation expectations very nicely anchored around just below 2%. The last five, six years, the ECB has been driving core inflation in the euro area to just 1%. A few months ago, stopped expansionary policies, despite the fact that uh, it's nowhere close to its, to its objective. So Again, I look at these flawed policies over the past 10 years, and, and I wonder what probability would they give that we would have reasonable policies going forward if we still have not acknowledged the problems of the recent past. And let me say a word about Italy. I believe every single speaker so far has mentioned Italy, and I expect Lorenzo will mention Italy as well, so I might, I might as well. And, and, and in, in my view, the fact that the euro has been a disaster is something that should be acknowledged, and Italy is the perfect example to make the case. Italy is a rich country that, in my view, should not have had the problems it has right now with its debt being considered almost junk, effectively, even though it's a rich country with a government that it's not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. But it's a government that has been running primary surpluses year in, year out for the past 20 years. So if we're in an environment where the global safe interest rate is effectively 0%. How can a government that had been running for 20 years primary surpluses be considered as a government that is facing debt trouble? What's causing that? I'll give this to you as an example. Now, Vito showed Japan as another example. Of course, we all know if you're looking at a country that should have been considered somewhat more risky in terms of its fiscal policy, that should have been Japan uh, with a debt-to-GDP ratio over 200% and a country that has been running primary deficits uh, consistently for the past several years. They have improved policy quite a bit. Now their primary deficit is down to about minus 3% as opposed to minus 8% if I recall a few years ago. But again, compare this with Italy. A country has been running surpluses all the time. Why is Italy a risky country and why is Italy facing these troubles? And as Alex pointed out, constantly being, I don't know what the right word is, let's say encouraged by the technocrats in Brussels course, and, 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 and Frankfurt uh, to correct its, its ways and adopt further austerity, even though austerity is the last thing the Italian economy needs if one looks at subpar aggregate and demand and inflation rates, core inflation in Italy, just to give you an idea, core inflation has been running at below 1% for for several years, which by any measure of macroeconomic management, if near 2% is your price stability objective, is evidence of inadequate, massively aggregate demand. So what's going on? Well, this is an example showing us again the mismanagement of the euro crisis and the fact that uh, policies in Europe are not designed in the benefit of Europe at all. The only reason Italy's debt is considered risky as opposed to Japan's debt today is because Italy doesn't really have uh, a central bank that represents its interest. If the Bank of Japan is uh, dealing with the Japanese government the same way that the ACB is dealing with. The Italian government, then I fear that Japanese debt would not be considered safe and it would not be trading at negative interest rates today. Had the ECB been acting in the best interest of the euro area as a whole, and had the ECB been operating with procedures that would be equitable for all member states of the euro area, Italy, being a rich country that has been running primary surpluses for all these years, would not have been in trouble, and Italian debt would have been considered safe, and the debt-to-GDP ratio in Italy would have been declining consistently over the past several years. This is just an illustration of the problems we are facing. I'm not going to go more into that. What I'm going to point out is that if we want to hope for uh, improvement in Europe and if we want to hope that disintegration can be avoided and that the path highlighted by, uh, by Vitor following the footsteps and the vision of, uh, of Monet will be followed, we need to have European institutions that actually start behaving the way uh, Monet would have expected them to behave if they continue to behave the way they have been behaving in the past decade and denying obvious flaws, then I don't think we have much reason to be optimistic. Thank you. Renzo. Good
4: afternoon to everybody. Uh, thanks, Desmond, for organizing this, and Alex for chairing. Thanks for having me. Since I work in Italy and since Italy has been mentioned many times, to focus my initial remarks on Italy. Let me tell you first, while, you know, Athanasius and Vitor were talking, I was thinking, why Italy joined the euro? I mean, because at the end of the day, you want to go back and, and understand, you know, the past, to understand uh, the future. And Italy joined the euro because in the 80s, basically, public finance were out of control. Public debt basically doubled over about 15 years. Inflation was very high. The Bank of Italy was unable really to uh, rein on inflation because the fiscal dominance, basically. And all this process, at the time Italy had full independent monetary policy, full independent fiscal policy, but apparently it was not able really to manage those policies the way that would benefit the country fully, for a number of reasons. But basically uh, the idea was that joining the monetary union, uh, basically the central bank could recover its credibility, could overcome problem of dynamic, what we know as economies, dynamic inconsistency. Fiscal rules were seen as a way of, you know, reining into the public debt dynamics. So that's the reason why after the 92 exchange rate, let's call crisis in Italy, the, the elite, the political elite, the economic elite, decided that for the country it would have been good to join the euro now the point so that's the the background the point that i'm going to make is that actually when you look at italy in the euro in the last 20 years you you cannot take averages of course the performance has not been great for a number of reasons but averages mask the fact that italy under went through two very hard crises for the country especially the sovereign debt crisis italy was at the center of the crisis and has been particularly damaging for the country. And of course, part of the reason why the politics in Italy developed the way it did is because the severity of those of those crises. But part of the reason of the severity of course was related to the lack of completion in the Eureka governance and issues related to the Eurora governance. But since, you know, the whatever it takes since, you know, 2013, things have started to, to go better. And actually, Italy was able to strengthen its position, even within the euro area. Now, the question is how to move forward, and that's definitely an issue. The last point I want to make is that given current situation, my sense is that it would not take much for italy to i wouldn't say thrive i put thrive you know quote-unquote because thrive is a big word but to move forward within the euro area and this pillar basically has to do with uh, committing to a fiscal adjustment strategy which uh, you might call austerity but indeed uh, this strategy should have basically three points the first a that target which, you know, for illustrative purposes, I put at nine percent of GDP. Okay, the second is a plan of structural reforms because Italy really, in the last years, didn't push much on structural reforms. You know, spending review, tax evasion, reducing the tax wedge on labor—all things that the government is not really bringing forward. And I think this plan of structural reform has to be agreed with the European Union and has to allow some leeway in the fiscal accounts. The third, of course, and partly, you know, part of this plan has to, to include some reform at the euro area level, some increase in risk sharing that would, you know, make the whole thing more credible. I mentioned down um, safe assets or the European Deposit Insurance Scheme. Or even you know, increase, uh, you know, in European labor mobility, because there are a lot of issues related to labor mobility in Europe in terms of regulation and, and, and other issues that should be tackled and could increase a lot, you know, the welfare of European workers. This would really allow, under reasonable assumption, steady decrease in the public debt. We have done simulation, and I'm not, not going to discuss this simulation, but of course the issues that currently Italy is spread between 20, 250 and 300 business points, there must be a way to reduce that spread and there must be a way within the euro area to
1: do that. Desmond. Thank you, Alex. Coming last it's always difficult because a lot of stuff that has been said, uh, you know, I very much agree with. But I'd put it in somewhat of a different perspective. And I'd say that I'm rather pessimistic about what Europe's future looks like. And what I want to discuss is four reasons for my pessimism. The first that you know, we've touched on quite a lot has been the history of the last 10, 15 years that Europe has already been performing in a rather disappointing way, both from an economic point of view and from a political point of view, And I don't see much reason why that is going to change. The second point that I'm going to make is that Europe suffers from fundamental flaws in the euro that raise real existential questions. Those I don't think are going to go away either. The third point I want to make is that Europe is now confronted with potentially major challenges two very large countries. You know, the one is the United Kingdom, the other is Italy, and there are reasons to think that Germany could be hit by shocks that will make this whole configuration rather difficult. And the last point that I'll be making is that Europe has very limited possibility to react to a crisis, that the amount of policy maneuverability that they've got both on the fiscal and the monetary side is rather limited uh, for reasons that I'll get into. So just to go very quickly through the history is that European performance, economic performance has been pretty dismal, not in the sense that Germany hasn't done reasonably well. Germany's done pretty much as well as the United States after the 2008 crisis, but it's more the countries in the south, and particularly in Italy. So, you know, go back to this chart. You know, it's amazing that over a period, you know, 20 years since the euro began, Italy's per capita income today is lower than it was 20 years ago. That's not a healthy situation, whereas Germany's is something like 20 25% higher. So the gap that you've got between the two Is really creating a lot of divergence on the economic side, and that leads to political difficulties that we've talked about. Of course, the same thing you see on the unemployment side that, you know, if you look at where we began in 2007, 2008, all of these countries seem to have similar rates of unemployment. Today, you know, what we've got is Germany's got a rate of unemployment well below five. And Italy is still well above 10. You know, that's not a healthy situation. So a currency union that was supposed to bring about convergence and prosperity for all, you know, seems to me to have created divergence. You know, you've got very strong resentment between the North and the South. The South, you know, feels that austerity is foist on them, that Brussels isn't responsive, you know, to their needs. And the North is getting tired of having to bail out countries that they don't believe play by uh, the rules. And what Vitor said now is that it looks like the center in European politics isn't holding. You know, you're getting a lot of fragmentation. And I would just say that in the recent European parliamentary election results, you know, while it wasn't as bad as people expect, in fact, it was better in some respects on average, Three countries that really counted, really the result was rather alarming. Thinking of Nigel Farage in the United Kingdom, you know, totally decimating the Tory party, you know, totally shaking up British politics, determining where Brexit is headed. In Italy, you have Salvini, who's now got the bit between his teeth, the post-Judia member in the coalition he's now the senior member, and he'll be driving economic policy going forward and he's got certain strange ideas about how to deal with Italy's crisis. And then Germany, you know, the centre collapses, that you've got Mrs Merkel's coalition now looks in trouble, and that might be problematic if Europe gets into crisis. So bad politics also makes uh, reform uh, difficult. So, so much for the history, you know, and I think that the past could be a prologue to the future... Uh, you know, which doesn't lead me to be too optimistic. The more important point that I want to make is that the euro is fundamentally flawed. And how I think it's flawed is that one should never have had two countries in a currency union that have got totally different productivity performances, differences in terms of how to structurally reform their economy. And what I'm thinking of is Italy and Germany you know that so what you see is this chart is just showing unit labor costs in the different countries so if you take a look at Italy Italy is some 30 percent above lost 30 percent of competitiveness to the other countries in Europe that is something that I don't see any reason why that is going to change going forward In fact, it gets worse. And that, to me, underlies the very weak performance of Italy relative to a more competitive country like Germany. The other weaknesses in Europe, where it's fundamentally flawed, is what Vito mentioned, that the union is not complete, that it's missing key elements, you know, a fiscal union, a proper insurance mechanism, risk sharing, and all the rest. And the fact that you haven't had it for 20 years... And now you've got worse politics. I'm not holding my breath for this to happen going forward. The other thing that I think is a flaw in the euro is that you've got a country that is at the center of the system that totally believes in balancing its budget under all circumstances. And in fact, there's a constitutional amendment that requires them to have a structural balance in their accounts. So it means that you have a government that Germany is limited in what it does in terms of downturns. You know, So you really need them to expand in the downturn, to use their fiscal space to get things going. Germany insists on doing that. I mean, it causes other problems with the United States. That is the counterpart of Germany running a very big current account surplus, you know, which can lead to import tariffs coming on Germany later on. Those are... Fundamental flaws that I think make it difficult to see how things correct. Let me go to the third point that I want to make and just say that there really are major challenges for Europe going forward. You know, the first, you know, and I think that that is the most dangerous challenge going forward is Italy. And it's a question that Italy really now has the highest debt level to GDP than it has in the past 150 years so they don't really have much room if the Italian economy for any reason goes into recession and they can't get out of recession their whole debt situation really becomes very problematic Italy has been enjoying a period in which the ECB has been buying its bonds in which global liquidity conditions were really terrific as soon as that changes you're then going to get the spreads widening that Lorenzo mentioned, and then Italy gets into very bad debt dynamics. The other thing is, we've already had that chart. You know, Alex mentioned the doom loop. Italy doesn't only have very high debt, but it's got a government that, so I say it's got a banking system that is holding something like 10% of its assets in terms of Italian government bonds. So as those spreads go up, the capital of those banks get eroded. Those banks can't lend. You know, it just adds to that negative debt loop in which Italy finds itself. So Italy, I'll just remind you, is the third largest member of the eurozone. It's the country that has got the third largest sovereign bond market in the world. So we're talking about $2.5 trillion of bonds. If things go wrong in Italy, that is not good news for either the European economy or for the global economy economy. And what gives me pause right now is that as Italy is slowing, Salvini is talking about needing to give Italy a fiscal shock. You know, one not we just go to a flat tax cut? One not we do what President Trump did in the United States? Never mind the high debt. Never mind that the debt dynamics is bad. Never mind that foreign bondholders are already getting skittish. One not we just have a fiscal stimulus here of something like one and a half points of GDP, to me, that looks like you're inviting a trouble relatively soon. The other thing I would want to point out is in the United Kingdom, we've got now a situation, particularly with Farage having won that election, it seems to me that there are really only two possibilities in the UK right now. The one you know, which seems to come as news to people in the United Kingdom is they're not in control of whether they have a hard Brexit or they don't have a hard Brexit, if they don't agree to the deal by the deadline, the default position is they have a hard Brexit. Since you're going to be getting a hard Brexiter, the Tories are going to have to elect a hard Brexiter to replace Theresa May. Otherwise, they're going to be completely destroyed by Nigel Farage. So with a hard Brexiter at the helm in the UK, the only way that the UK is not going to crash out of Europe is if somehow Parliament restrains them and forces a general election. But that raises the prospect that Jeremy Corbyn gets into power, which is another negative for the United Kingdom. Just in terms of the United Kingdom crashing out of Europe, most of the estimates that I see, you know, whether it's from the Bank of England, whether it's from the OECD, whether it's from the IMF, you 're talking about the United Kingdom economy getting hit by a decline of anywhere between six seven eight percent of GDP over an eighteen month period we're talking about the fifth largest economy in uh, the world that is not a, a joke you know particularly with what's going on with China and uh, so on so for that reason I'm not uh, overly optimistic about Europe. This chart is just showing that even Already now, the past two and a half years since the referendum, the black line at the bottom is UK investment, uh, the line above are the other countries in uh, Europe, you know, so what you're seeing is that investment in the UK has already flatlined uh, since uh, uh, the middle of 2016 when others are increasing. If they crash out of Europe, uh, that is really, uh, I think that the estimates, the consensus estimate uh, is right, that that'll be a huge shock to Europe. And it'll be a shock to, maybe it's not a shock to the overall European economy, uh, but certainly a country that's as precarious as Italy, the last thing that they can afford is a shock in a major country uh, that can be uh, the uh, tipping point. The question I would just say about Germany is that Germany is a highly export-dependent economy. You know, so this is really the third leg. We're talking about roughly half of their <coughs> GDP. So Germany can hardly afford to have the United States in a trade war with China that is slowing China down. That explains a lot of the slowdown in the German economy. If that gets worse, Germany is going to be really hit hard by closure of its export markets in Asia, and then what we've got is a president in his wisdom is thinking that it would be a good idea to put a 25% tariff on European automobiles and Japanese automobiles. So if he does follow through on that, that's another risk. So I'm seeing that there are three major risks, Italy, United Kingdom, and Germany, that doesn't give me much room for optimism. The last point I'd just make is that in terms of policy response, you know, what we've got is we've got Germany that doesn't want to use this fiscal space. That's a problem you know, if you have another European downturn. And it's worse than that because what Germany does is it foists on the others to have budget austerity, you know, to try to balance their budgets when things are going down. That deepens uh, the recession. And I needn't say that European Central Bank is starting from very low interest rates. They don't have much room on the interest rate side. You know, and I'm not sure that you know if we get a German at the head of the central bank that they'll have much enthusiasm to further increase the size of the European balance sheets. That is where I stand on Europe.
0: Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.
1: Hi, I'm James Pethokoukas, host of the AEI Podcast, Political Economy. For a deeper look into today's top policy debates, click the link in the description below and subscribe.